Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Uh, today is Wednesday, June 12th, 2019, starting at, uh, I believe, 12.50 p.m. in London, England, and this is the 209th episode of the show. Uh, joining me today is Kim Farnell, and we're going to be talking about her new book titled Modern Astrologers, The Lives of Alan and Bessie Leo. Uh, hey, Kim, thanks for joining Hi, me today. thanks for having me. Yeah, so we are actually today at the Astrological Lodge uh, of London, which was founded by Alan Leo in uh, 1915, right? Um, sort of. We're in the Theosophical Society building, where the Middlesex Lodge, as it was originally first met in 1915, mm-hmm. and downstairs. This library that we're sitting at the moment would have been there in the same way then. Okay. So, yes, Alan would have come and set up here. Brilliant. And this is one of the research libraries here? Yes, it extends into the room behind us, which we can't actually see at the moment. But um, there's also an archives at ESAS downstairs where they're constantly finding records they didn't know they got and recataloguing them. So new things are coming to light all the time. Sure. Um, all right. So for those of my listeners that are newer astrologers that might not be familiar with your work yet, uh, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and what your background is in astrology and some of the books that you've, you've written? Huh. I started doing astrology in the mid-80s because I was unemployed, so I took an evening class. Mm-hmm. And I went through the faculty, took the faculty diploma, and started attending astrology groups, so quite a lot in London at that time. And then I started writing an article about Sepharial, the uh, Walter Old, known as the Astrology Sepharial. That was in the late 90s. And the article sort of grew and grew that really super, it got bigger and bigger it became a book mm-hmm. and that's when I realized that my main thing was going to be the history of astrology rather than just the practice of right. astrology and so that was your first book what year did that come out that yeah it was 1998 I believe it okay. came out got it um there's been quite a few books since yeah, then since then <laughs> yeah um but then I was on the astrological association council for a number of years I was vice chair of the AA um, I worked at the Urania Trust when we used to have me- regular meetings there. I was involved in a group in South London and doing South East England conferences and mm-hmm. a whole lot of different things until I, I did the Masters in Cultural Astronomy and Astrology at Bath Spa, in, which I finished in 2005. And then where we are now, I ended up being president of the Lodge, which I know my 11th year. 11th year as president yeah. of the Lodge. Wow. Uh, and the 2005, the, the Bass Spot, that's uh, Nick Campion's program, which focuses on the history and cosmology of astrology, right? Yeah, it's a very different uh, degree course now to what it was then. It's now moved to Lampeter. Hmm. And they're focusing far more strongly on astroarchaeology and archaeoastronomy, that, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Sure. Um, when I did this, it, I was in the first year of intake. And it was a lot more about the um, history of astrology, particularly in the 19th century, mm-hmm. and how it became modern astrology and how the practice of astrology worked. It's, it's shifted a bit now. Sure. What drew you to studying the history of astrology or what interests you about that topic? Initially, when I started with Safariel, it was really mundane. He happened to have been born quite close to where I was born. Mm. 
which obviously, you know, that offered a personal link, so it instantly became interesting. Right. And when he'd written about certain places in the city and uh, in Birmingham, where he's for, and places he went to and travelling to this place, I actually knew these streets. I knew what he was talk, talking about. So mm. it was an automatic connection made him interesting. Yeah. And it took on a life of its own. So I didn't think I was going to get into history. I didn't think I was going to write a book. And it just made itself as a book. Mm-hmm. And then the next one came after that. And then before I knew it, I'd just written a whole pile of books. Right. And you've done a lot of uh, not just writing of your own books, but also like professional editing and contributed to a number of different volumes as well. Yeah, my day job is as an editor. Mm -hmm. Um, I edit and I've ghostwritten a lot of titles. Um, Mainly in the historic fields, because that's obviously what I know best. Mm -hmm. But I also do things like business books and novels, usually historical novels. That's my speciality when I'm editing fiction, mm-hmm. because I'm quite good at spotting anachronisms, right? Um, which people pay quite well for, which is nice. Um, yeah, so that's the day job. Okay. But it means I also now edit the uh, the Lodges magazine, Astrology Quarterly. Okay. So, and I've edited other astrological publications. Brilliant. Um, so your first book was about Safariel, mm-hmm. and he was an astrologer who lived about 100 years ago, around the turn of the 20th, 19th to 20th century. Yeah, same generation as Alan Leo, basically. Yeah, well, and it's interesting that now you've written a book about Alan Leo, because usually, oftentimes, other people might, I don't know, start with Alan Leo, because he's usually viewed as more influential on the history of astrology. Yeah. And to be honest, that's exactly why I didn't, right. originally, because... There was um, an auto, sort of biographical book about Leo, which is a collection of essays people who knew him, mm-hmm. and the biographical details are given by Bessie Leo. So there sort of was a biography of Leo available. Mm-hmm. At the time, I didn't know how accurate it was. It turns out not very accurate at all. But, okay. you know, back in the day, Leo had a biography. Safariel had nothing. Sure. So I was more interested in filling what seemed like to be an obvious gap. Um, but it became more apparent as I looked into 19th century and early 20th century astrology that... What was written about Leo was a little bit unreliable, mm-hmm. to put it mildly. There wasn't actually that much material. And nobody had ever joined the dots between his two worlds. He he lived and worked as an astrologer, but he was a theosophist. Mm-hmm. So the theosophists had created their history of Alan Leo, and the astrologers had created their history of Alan Leo, and nobody had pulled them together. Okay. So that mm-hmm. was part of your motivation eventually yeah. to decide to write this book about... Uh, not just Alan Leo, but also Bessie Leo, his wife? It became impossible to separate them. I originally intended to just write about Alan Leo, and Mm. obviously I had to do some research into Bessie because it affected his life and how he approached things. That relationship was of paramount importance to him throughout his life. But it became obvious they worked together so much, though their lives are so entangled, I couldn't really write about one without writing about the other. Sure. So I thought rather than pretend I'm doing that, I'll actually call it a book about the two of them and research it properly like that. I really love and appreciate that because that's a problem I ran into where it seems like sometimes there's astrologers that are couples and um, one of them sometimes gets the credit, but oftentimes when you really research them, you realize their lives were intertwined and sometimes the less prominent one doesn't get as much credit mm. but often like i did an episode last year on michelle and francois goklin and it seemed like uh francois's contribution to michelle's work was you know significant enough to warrant sort of treating them as a pair for most of their their work careers yeah. so it's interesting that you really put that front and center in terms of presenting them as a pair in this book 
it's it's partly a personal thing because I have um, a writing partner that I sometimes do work with, mm-hmm. and he rang me up at one point looking at some stuff we'd written two or three years before, and asked me whose work it was because he couldn't remember whether he'd written it, I'd written it, or we'd written it together. And when I okay. looked at it, I'd got no idea either, yeah. and we're not that close, and yet we couldn't separate the work out. So sure. for someone like Alan and Bessie, I don't, I've no idea where you could draw the line and separate them. Right, that's funny. Um, all right, well, let's get into some biographical information and just assume that our listener has no idea who Alan Leo is or Bessie Leo and the like, context in which they lived or their time, time frames. So, um, so Alan Leo lived from 1860 to 1917, yeah. and Bessie lived from 1858 to 1931. Um, so they lived in a time towards the late, uh, or they were born in the late 19th century in a time when astrology was just starting to come out of like a low phase of a couple of centuries, right? Yeah, they, they were primarily Edwardian astrologers. That was their high point. Okay. Um, there was a generation of astrologers, including Sapphira and others from George Wilde, all born around 1816 to the mid-1860s, so quite close in age, mm. a lot of those astrologers, that met up. Um, at the time they became adult, into those guys into about their 20s, the transport system in England had increased uh, sorry, improved drastically. Okay. And this sounds like a minor point, but it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Communications better. We had the best postal service during that era that we'd ever had. Yeah. Um, seven a, deliveries a day in London. That was a point that you made yeah. that was really interesting. Like that that was like the first time in history you could you could get mail delivered seven times a day mm-hmm. uh, for relatively cheap. Yeah, the, and it meant that astrologers could really communicate to each other. The railways extending all over the country, you could get a train to visit people easily. Mm-hmm. And they did, they visited each other all the time. They were constantly dropping on each other's doorsteps. Mm-hmm. And that was also part of the whole theosophical and general esoteric thing at the time, that you went to visit people and you might stay three months. Okay. People just did. So... The person is probably the equivalent of how the internet's affected us. It's, right. You know, their equivalents. They could suddenly communicate, they could suddenly get around. So you've got people who are interested in things like astrology, can meet like minded people, set up groups and societies, set up magazines, which like the fanzines people set up in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Exact equivalent, except esoteric material. Right. So things started buzzing, people getting excited, and it, it spread. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so uh, part of the context of that also was we're coming off of or still in the middle of like the 19th century spiritualist movement and also almost contemporaneous is the rise of theosophy or the theosophical society. Yeah, theosophy is a little bit before. By the time the astrologers really get going this particular group, Hmm. astrology, that's it, theosophy is firmly established. Okay. And there's a lot of crossover between the groups, a lot of, um, there was actually, and I say a lot of them, there was a line drawn, there were, there were astrologers who were still theosophists, mm. like um, Alan Abesse, there were astrologers like E.H. Bailey, who was a little bit younger, but still part of that group, mm. who were staunchly opposed to theosophy, and then there were people who couldn't really care less one way or the other, just wanted their astrology books and clubs and that was it sure but there were a lot of arguments about it and theosophy 
was there in the background, even for those astrologers that didn't want theosophy in their astrology. Okay. It was all pervasive. Mm-hmm. It informed everything to do with esoteric stuff at that time. So it was just, it had permeated like the esoteric, the discourse on esoteric topics mm. so much that it was sort of affecting everybody in some ways, whether you're an adherent or not. Yeah, it's like today if you tried to have a, a conversation with someone about positive thinking and decided that you're not going to mention anything about the law of attraction or related to it for the next hour because it's not going to, it's just so there now sure. in that part of culture that people refer to it maybe indirectly. They might not say the words, but it's there. It's a concept that's so there. Okay. Theosophy and astrology are like that. The theosophy is just so there that even if you don't acknowledge it, if you don't formally recognize it or say you're anti it, it's, it's influencing everything. Sure. And, and when we're talking about theosophy, we're especially talking about that as being like the brainchild of Helena Blavatsky, yeah. right? Except by the time um, we're talking about it stops being so much Blavatsky and theosophy mm-hmm. and tends more to Annie Besant's style of theosophy, which... It's a bit of a nitpicking point, but just in case there's a theosophers listening, sure. taking notes, so like, we're talking more about Besant theosophy. Okay, and she was was she the second or third president of the Theosophical Society? Um, I believe it's, oh goodness, I can't remember my date. She she was the president after um, Olcott died. So okay. after after um, it was in 1906. Probably check the date she became president. But she was on the circuit for a long time. She was a theosophist. For quite a while before that, and okay. uh, Alan Leo and other prominent astrologers knew her, mm-hmm. or they revered her. He um, enough so that he had a portrait in his op- on his office wall, so he could look at it while he worked. Wow. Okay. So, you know, yeah. a poster of Annie Best on the wall. Yeah, that's dedication. Um, so, and about Alan Leo, in, a, in terms of his early life, um, how did he start out? Or he came from somewhat humble origins. Yeah, very. um, He was born in basically what was slums in Westminster, a very smart bit of London nowadays, but the whole area was raised to the ground and rebuilt, so Mm. it's pretty much unrecognisable. And he ended, his family moved around the country eventually. He lived in Edinburgh for a while where he was schooled, Mm -hmm. and then his family came back and lived in the north of England. But um, his father was a soldier for a while and then became a hospital porter. Uh, His mother did some work as a seamstress. They didn't have a lot of money, but so they were working poor, but they weren't destitute, they weren't that level of poor. Sure. And he left home relatively early and became a trucking salesman. He worked in a grocery shop for a while, then started working on the sales side, and eventually worked for a few different companies as a salesman, settling in London when he was working for uh, ice cream manufacturer in Camberwell. Okay. So he was a, a salesman, basically. Yeah, he was a, tra- he was a, a commercial salesman. He used to get on a train, take samples mm-hmm. around the country. Uh, Ebenezer Roberts, the company he worked for in Camberwell, was hugely famous and big di- displays. And they, they sold um, ice cream making machines and similar things commercially, not just the shops or anything, but for factories and for organisations. Okay. So um, Alan did things like factory inspections and oversaw installation of equipment and things like that. Okay. It wasn't just carrying around a little tache case. Right. And certainly showing a little sample. He did do that at some points, but his work was actually a bit more involved at the times. And that's what's really funny to think about in reading your book is like he really was a working class Mm. type guy 
who fell into and fell in love with astrology, but for a long time, it wasn't clear if he was going to make it. There wasn't like this inevitability that he would always be the preeminent astrologer of the early 20th century, yeah. but it was much more like... I don't think he even considered that as a possibility. It was just something... And you meet people like this nowadays. If you go to any astrology group or organisation, there are people right. who are really enthused about astrology, but if you see them outside, they've got a day job doing... What if they do? It's a wide variety of jobs. Right. And presumably amongst that number, there are some travelling salesmen still now that work around the country and everything in the same yeah. way. Mm. He, he went to work like everyone else, and then on his time off at weekends, he'd get into astrology and meet up with astrologers. It wasn't a career move. Sure. So how did he find astrology, or how did he get into it? He came from a slightly odd background. His mother was Plymouth Brethren, and... Um, she taught in quite a strange version of Christianity. That's the version that Alistair Crowley also came from and other famous people, Plymouth Brethren. They've got some quite odd ideas, but we won't get there at the moment. Um, but also his mother was interested in different uh, philosophies. And he mentioned in passing at one point she had um, an Indian friend who came to visit and was talking about the concept of reincarnation in Indian culture and things like that. So he was, up, he was introduced to ideas that were a bit out of the ordinary quite early on, because mm-hmm. that would have been, um, I think, in his mid-teens, if I remember rightly, something around there. Okay. So he came across those ideas, um, and he came across, there were magazines circulating, but he came and started reading them, and people used to insert letters saying, if you want to make friends, and you know, like the equivalent of modern day internet forums, basically, so mm. he did it through the post. And he answered one of the letters, which is how he met Frederick Lacey. So then he established a whole network based on that. So it was like a letter in a magazine that was looking for contacts with other astrologers? Yeah, there used to be a few. And sometimes I just want people to write, you know, do you want to exchange letters about this? Um, other times, it's I li- um, in Lace's case, I live in South London. Does anyone fancy joining a group if I set one up? Okay. I mean, that was a fairly common thing for people to do, to make contact in that way. And, yeah, Alan answered Lace's letters. And wow. And then saying, he, yeah. he made his first friend in astrology. And this it was sounds like his first friend ever, actually. That's probably a bit mean. But okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, so he grows up in this sort of somewhat extreme religious background. I don't know if extreme is the right way to characterize it, but it's a unique... I think it's a different background. Okay. His father wasn't a member of the Plymouth Brethren, he was a Methodist. Mm-hmm. But still, you know, not the standard religious background you get in England at the time, still a little bit different. Sure. And um, it doesn't sound like they rammed Christianity down his throat or anything like that. Mm. But an interesting point about it is if, if you look at the biography I mentioned in, about Alan Leo's life that Bessie wrote, mm-hmm. she explains him as having quite a nice family. And um, he went to stay at his grandparents in the country and they had a nice tea on the lot and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Except his grandparents lived in Clerkenwell just around the corner and they lived you know, tend to a room type place. Now, this never happened. He reinvented okay. himself later. Sure. So some of that was just their later, um, sp- not spin, but uh, the way they wanted to present his sort of biography. To be fair, um, Bessie may have thought it was the truth. Okay. It's never been clear because uh, it, it wasn't true. I mean, for instance, when, when he married Bessie, he gave his father's name as William Leo, mm-hmm. gentleman, which... Uh, 
his name, his father's name was William Allen, and he probably wasn't a nasty person, but he wasn't a gentleman's own minute in that sense. He was a hospital porter. Sure. And he changed other facts like that. But Bessie may well have believed those to be true. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't have known. So when she explains his background in the biography, she isn't necessarily lying. It may be what Alan told her, okay. and she's accepted as fact. Yeah, and there's some points related to that that we'll come back to again mm-hmm. in terms of uh, some questions about his biography and what she was aware of in terms of his life prior mm-hmm. even to their meeting. Um, so he, he starts reading astrology magazines. He answers a letter from William Lacey. Frederick Lacey. Frederick Lacey, yeah. who's looking f- to connect with other astrologers, and Alan writes him back and they connect and meet up and then he starts basically becoming associated with astrologers and starts getting more into astrology from that point forward, right? Yeah, and it happened at a time that the one astrology magazine which was thought thought of as being the good magazine in Mm. England was about to collapse. That was just as Lacey and Leo had got friendly and decided they're getting really into astrology. Mm. So this gap arose where there was no astrological publications for a while, which is how the astrology magazine like was born. Okay. Uh, because it was just a matter of timing. If they'd met the year before, they may not have bothered because there was a magazine that came out of circulating a year after someone else might have filled the gap. Mm-hmm. But at that time, they, there was a need for another publication. And what year is this that they first met each other and started talking? 1887, I believe. Okay. Um, 1887 was when Leo came to London, certainly. And you, you met Lacey, 1887, 1888. 88 was probably when they got friendly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have written dates in the book, but I've not got such sure. a good head for yeah. that date. Just roughly. Um, yeah, and they, they met then and they met other astrologers. And Lacey had already been corresponding with a few other astrologers. Um, for example, he'd been corresponding with Safariel. Mm-hmm. prior to meeting Alan, so he introduced them, and he vaguely knew George Wilde, I believe, and some of the other names of the period. Mm-hmm. So when Leo and Lacey met, Lacey already had a bit of a network set up that mm-hmm. Leo could tap into. Okay. And so eventually, before too long after their connection, they decide to found an astrology magazine together? Yeah, they seem to decide to do it just out of badness because everyone told them it was a bad idea and I was sitting on the top deck of the bus. And it, the description of it, when you read between the lines, make it sound like they've had a couple of drinks too many and they're right. sort of the back seat of the bus and they ah, let's have a magazine. Yeah. But they ran with it anyway. And it was like a big financial investment, but they both sort of sat down and made an agreement or formed a partnership where they both poured their funds into it yeah. to launch this venture. Theoretically, in real terms, Alan Lear didn't have any funds to, to really pour into anything, okay. so it would have been lazy funding it. Okay. Uh, so he f- funded it, and then uh, one of the things that was funny that you talk about briefly in the book is that Safariel, who was sort of a friend or associate of theirs at the time, they tell him that they're going to start a magazine, and then he basically says, well, I'm going to start a magazine, and he starts his and releases it a month before they do yeah. theirs. It, it was the sort of thing Farrell did quite a lot, actually. He was quite an irritating person in some respects. Sure. He never explained why he did that. Um, he, he maintained it was just, oh, it's just happened that way. It was just the way the schedule works. That was his sort of approach. But the magazine he tried to, uh, the one he brought out a month earlier, didn't last many issues. It failed 
Right, it was like four yeah. issues or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he, he basically he rushed it out. So yes, it was deliberate. It wasn't an accident because he hadn't. Of course, then Safari did come out with another magazine shortly after that. Safari issued quite a few failed magazines during his life. It's something he was quite good at. Okay, yeah, and that's one of the things uh, that's funny that you said that. Just because one of the things I loved about your book in reading it um, over the past few months is that it's really funny because. There's a lot of these little exchanges and things that happen between the astrologers that are sometimes kind of uh, petty or sometimes kind of they're squabbling with each other and doing weird things. But it's also very funny and very relatable because even though we're talking about people from a century ago, they're very human and many of the same dynamics that you see in communities or in the astrological community today, they were sort of playing out in different ways. Yeah, Yeah, so we tend to sometimes in other writings about characters of that period. They're revered, they've put in, they had these important things, they were a major astrologer. If you take for another example, George Wilde, mm-hmm. who we used to call himself George Wilde from Halifax, just in case you ever forgot it came from Halifax, he used to append it to everything. But that was actually quite an important point because to be an important astrologer you really needed to come from the South, that showed you in the right class. Okay. And he didn't. But also he worked on the railways. And if you read accounts about him, you know, he wrote for this magazine, he published this, he had these clients. The reality was he got up in the morning and he went to work on the railways. Mm-hmm. And then in his evenings or on Sundays, he would do some astrology. That okay. was his life most of the time. The real life is quite different to what is often written down. I was mm-hmm. trying to look at the reality of what people did. Right. And trying to, the, the difference between how they presented themselves and trying to present themselves yeah. as respectable in some way versus the reality of having to live their lives or get by while still pursuing something that they're passionate about, but mm. that's not necessarily hugely financially lucrative mm. With in terms of astrology. I think a lot of them didn't really think of astrology having anything to do with money-making activities at all. Right. There's a minority of people who try to make money. I mean, for example, Frederick Lacey worked as an accountant and a clerk. Um, he played the organ, which he was also paid for sometimes. So I don't mean he just happened to play it because he liked it. Okay. He used to play at Freemasons Hall and he played at the Royal Albert Hall. And he was quite a renowned musician. And he, early on, he made more money from his sheet music than he did his astrology. Okay. So, yeah, yeah the, these, but they were, astrology wasn't a career move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just something they found and became interested in mm-hmm. and became passionate about. Yeah, it was an interest. It's another thing. It was just something they did in their spare time for most of them. Sure. I mean, okay, some people spent more of their spare time on it than others, but for a lot of people, it was just a hobby. Right, that makes sense. So, um, uh, Alan and uh, Frederick Lacey found this magazine, and it's called the Astrologers. Modern... Uh, the Astrologers magazine, which we've actually you actually have a copy. One. Yeah, yeah, I've got several copies. I I had I owned some of these, but when the astrologer Maurice McCann died a few years ago, I inherited a lot of his magazines and books and things, wow. which is one reason why I've got such a big Alan Lea collection now. But mm. if you want to... Wow, so this is dated July 1894, and what was the year of the first issue? Oh, I can't remember the time. Let me see if I wrote it down. Um, I think it was 90, 1890. Yeah, that sounds about right. 1890, 1891. So this is the Astrologer's Magazine, and this is number four, volume four, number two. 
just for the camera. Um, so they start publishing this magazine, and one of the things they um, did... Just a point about this, actually, because sure. you were talking about money a moment ago. Right. The, this is the back of that magazine. Okay. And it's actually advertising space taken out by the company that employed Alan Leo. Right, their ice, and they, ice cream ads. Yeah, so this is how the magazine was funded at that stage, by selling that space. Wow, that's so funny. And this is from October of 1893. Mm. Um, and some of the titles of the contents are Modern Ideas of an Astrologer, Hindu Astrology, Infantile Mortality, The Life of the Weather, The Student's Corner, uh, Mundane Astrology, The Degrees of the Zodiac Symbolized, and Letters to the Editor. So they start a magazine, and they must have thought that there was a market for it to some extent, that there were other astrologers around or other people that might be interested in it. There was a small market because um, the the magazine called Astrology, which immediately precedes it, hadn't sold huge amounts, but it sold some issues. There were other small publications that turned up here and there. Um, the one that John Thomas was involved in, which the name which escapes me at the moment now, which was done in the, um, around Chester, that bit of uh, the Welsh English borders mm -hmm. the magazines published up there they gained some um, some custom so the, the they knew there were people willing to buy some magazine sorry need there were some people willing to buy publications they did exist that audience but it wasn't a huge audience okay um, and but one of the things that they did that set them apart in order to promote the magazine is they started selling, horoscopes to subscribers, right? Yes, because they had to deal with what they thought was a serious competition from Sparrow, which actually wasn't as it turns out in the end, but obviously they didn't realise that at the time. They thought okay. it was a serious opposition. And so they offered, um, you had coupons where you could send your coupon and get a free delineation, two or three paragraphs long normally, okay, very brief. And... Alan did all the maths and calculated the charts. Frederick Lacey wrote the delineations. They started off by doing it the odd Friday evening and Saturday afternoons. They ended up by work. As soon as I came home from work, they sat down, did charts, got up in the morning, worked through the whole weekend, sometimes working through Saturday night wow. to keep up with them. And they did think of like about 1,500 of these in the few years they are doing it. Right, 1,500 uh, handwritten sort of horoscopes, even mm. if it's just a few pair, uh, three, two to three paragraphs long, that's still a lot of still work. Still a lot of work, because each one obviously had to be calculated by hand. And I mean, Alan presumably got quite speedy at it. If you're doing that many horoscopes, you, you do get quite fast. Sure. You know, and it's straightforward maths. But even so, it's a bit time consuming. I think you're hard pushed to do it under about 20 minutes. Right. Um, but it worked, and they mm. actually, it, it did seem to attract attention. Yeah, and it, it meant that they could sell lengthier horoscopes, no wonder to, which wasn't recently Lacey did because he wasn't so interested in going in that direction, but Alan certainly used it as a jumping-off point to sell more detailed horoscopes later. Mm -hmm. so later on, he set up whole um, systems of different prices for different amounts of work. With, he had cheap taster ones. He carried on doing that carried on with that idea throughout. Okay, so they started selling, it says on the top of this one, free horoscopes to annual subscribers. Yeah. And that was relatively successful and they were able to eventually start breaking even with the sales of the magazine. 
Just. Just, okay. Just, just yeah. barely, maybe. I mean, they, they, Lacey got back the money put in, in into it in the end. Um, they didn't really make a profit, or at least no substantial profit, mm. but it looked good enough to make Alan Lear think that it was worth continuing. Even when Lacey wanted to drop out, he'd had enough. It was a hobby, and it was turning into something bigger than he wanted to in his spare time. Okay. Um, but Alan Lear thought there was enough mileage in it that it could actually increase the sales and turn it into a proper magazine. So Lacey drops out after a few years and Alan takes it over as the sole proprietor? Yeah. Okay. And that's when it becomes modern astrology. Got it. So it goes from being the astrologer's magazine to modern astrology. And Alan, by this point, really got into, was really heavy into theosophy, right? Yes, certainly. And one of the things that he talks about in his later books that really attracted him, him to that philosophy is the ideas of like karma and reincarnation. He does say that, but you also have to remember that if you're on the esoteric scene in London, you'd go to a philosophical meeting at some point anyway. It'd be a bit difficult not to, mm-hmm. because these are the people to hang out with. So although his political be genuine the way he expresses it, I think he does weight it a bit more in the direction of, I wanted to learn about these ideas because I'll get more philosophical than is actually the truth. There was a bit of it that was these are the people to hang out with because they're the people who matter on the scene. Okay, sure. And that was kind of like the prevailing philosophy of the day in that scene? Yeah. Yeah. And Sepharil was obviously, I'm saying obviously, it's probably not obvious to most of the rest of the world, Sepharil was very involved in theosophy. He was first and foremost a theosophist, even Mm -hmm. though we remember him as an astrologer. Again, it's one of those things that theosophists have their history of him, Mm. and we have our history of him. And he was integral in causing huge arguments and schisms within the Theosophical Society, which actually led to the American Theosophical Society seceding from the British one. So, you know, he had quite a big effect. Mm. But he was also, he lived in this building, well, not this, but he lived in the Theosophical Society building. He lived with Helena Blavatsky. He was part of the in crowd. And he introduced Alan Leo and Frederick Lacey to the Theosophical Society, to the inner sort of core theosophy. Right, and was Safariel was the one who was like there at her bedside when she passed away, right? Yeah, he held her hand when she died. Wow. But I, then he was always hanging around somebody, so, and he was basically a librarian who interfered in things. Okay, a basic, that's a good subtitle, <laughs> put on a business card or something. Interfering librarian. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, Alan's really into it, and when he takes over the magazine, he shifts it a little bit even more towards theosophy, right? Yeah, because Lacey, Lacey attended theosophical meetings, and he was a theosophist, but he was never as enthused about it as Alan was, and he saw the astrology as a slightly separate thing. He had his theosophical life, he went to meetings, he joined lodges. He and Alan actually um, were integral in establishing a, lodge in, a theosophical lodge in Brixton. Mm-hmm. But his astrology was a separate matter. Okay. So when they were working together on the magazine, there wasn't too much theosophy creeping in. Mm. There were charts of eminent theosophists, no mentions of theosophy, mm. but it wasn't the overriding philosophy. Okay. As soon as Lacey had gone, Alan was free to put loads of theosophy, which he did immediately. It, it changed to a completely theosophical magazine. Okay. Um, so that's important, and that's an important turning point. And at some point around here, 
or not too far after that, we eventually, Bessie, like, enters the scene, right? Yeah, she wrote off for a free horoscope, which okay. is how she met Alan, her correspondence. Um, she was a theosophist by then, and she attended the lodge in Bournemouth, and basically other people who knew Alan Leo's magazine, not him personally at that time, suggested she got her chart done. It wasn't the first time Bessie got a chart done. We know that she must have had it done at least twice before because she knew a woman astrologer in the north of England that would have looked at her chart. Mm. And the man she married, John Joseph Spark, also practiced as an astrologer. Okay. And her primary thing wasn't astrology initially though, right? Phrenology was her main thing to start off with. But that was part an accident of circumstance as well. She was interested in esoteric subjects generally and mm. she came across theosophy relatively early but she through an old school friend she met some phrenologists and they happened to be based in the north of England where they were all there were several families who were all intermarrying and all phrenologists they traveled around England and Wales doing displays and setting up offices and she she became an no sorry she became associated with them so she knew a lot of uh, phrenologists. Okay. So she've mainly worked with them, but she also sold herself as a, pres- um, a professor of handwriting. Okay. So gra- graphology? Yeah. Except she called it something quite different, a pathology, I think they called it then. Okay. But yeah, she did, she had handwriting, she did other things like that as well. She had a very vague, basic knowledge of astrology at that time. Mm-hmm. But she um, sees this advertisement, she writes off to Alan for her horoscope, and he writes one back. He gives a delineation, or you said actually somebody else. Yeah, that's that's the version that she said, that she wrote and he sent the horoscope, and she was so amazed it was brilliant, and that right. was it. So she wrote it. What actually happened is she wrote off, and Frederick Lacey sent the horoscope and signed Alan Leah's name to it. Okay. So it might not have actually been Alan who wrote the horoscope. It certainly wasn't Alan who wrote the horoscope. That's a nice little piece of like investigation that you did in uncovering. And the book is like full of little nice little tidbits like that, um, which I think is one of the reasons why it's really important that you wrote it to clarify some of those things or just like interesting um, little turns in terms of the history of how things actually did or little inconsistencies that you came across occasionally. Um, so, but anyway, so she was sufficiently impressed by it, and then they began a correspondence at that point, right? She wrote to him initially to ask if he would teach her astrology, because he did do lessons by correspondence mm-hmm. sometimes, um, and then suggested that should he ever be passing, she was in Southampton at the time, and Alan was in London, but should he ever be passing, he could call on her. And Alan tended to call on anyone who vaguely suggested it, so... He did, in sort of after a few months. Yeah, so he was so he was going around giving astrology lectures in different places, and he was pretty excited about presenting the subject wherever he could. Sort of, he was traveling as a salesman, mm-hmm. and because he had to stay overnight in various towns, mm-hmm. he used to advertise ahead and write to people and ask if they'd let him do a free lecture. Okay. So was this yeah, like his so the, way of? Yes, he did that, but the emphasis is the other way around. Right, is his day job still? Yeah. Uh, but still kind of trying to do the astrology thing on the side whenever he, he could? Yeah, I mean, he spent a lot of time, um, especially in the 
mid nineties, traveling around early to mid nineties, traveling around England and London, Wales, mm. and he had to stay overnight at various cities, maybe a couple of days in certain places, mm. and he was often in major cities like Manchester or Leeds or places, you know, where the there would be a group of astrologers. Okay. He could get in, or at least some people who'd be interested in hearing about astrology. Mm. And it's sometimes you'd see adverts in the uh, Modern Astrology or the Astrologers magazine, then like, Alan Leo is planning to be in this city on these dates. If Contact us if anybody would like him to give a talk. Sure. Okay. Um, so they start corresponding, they eventually meet up, and she has an interesting background besides just graphology, but... One of the issues is that she sort of reluctantly got married not long before she met Alan Leo, right? No, she already knew. Um, she was engaged to be married when she met Alan. Okay. She didn't. Um, it's a bit of time. Um, Spark asked her to marry him a few times. They collab- They worked together. They wrote books together and collaborated on work. Her and her, her, her and first John husband. Joseph Spark, yes. Okay. Um, but she wasn't married to him when she met Alan. She told him that she was engaged to be married. Mm-hmm. And she carried on corresponding with Alan, um, although she got married. And then she went um, on honeymoon to the States with her husband. Um, she had family in the States mm-hmm. through her father. We don't know much details what she did, but it wasn't her first visit to the USA, so it does seem quite likely that it was a family connection because her father had taken her over there a couple of years before, so yeah. Sure. Anyway, um, when they came back, she set up into business, set up a business with Spark, they worked together, and Alan came to visit them. Mm-hmm. And shortly after they were married, she invited Alan down for Christmas. Okay. And that business that they started was connected to phrenology because they were both. Uh, Spark and that's it. Yeah, yeah, they. It was primarily phrenology, but after Spark met Alan, which he did quite early on in marriage, mm-hmm. Alan actually suggested to Spark he might want to do some astrology, and Spark thought that was a good idea. Okay. So he did astrological consultations as part of his business as well. Okay. He was quite an established phrenologist by then. He'd had offices in. Cardiff for quite some time before he'd moved down to Bournemouth. Um, so he was doing astrology he, as well. And like I said, then Bessie was corresponding with Alan all the time. He turned up a Boxing Day and Spot promptly left. Hmm. So there's a, there was something else going that nobody detailed it in the account. You just go like sort of, Alan arrived to visit, my husband went away. Right. But there's no sort of, you have to read between the lines. Yeah, at some point their relationship, sort of initial correspondence eventually turned into a sort of romantic relationship of some sort. Well, certainly an intimate relationship. I don't know whether it was romantic or not, but it was intimate. Sure, because that was something, like Bessie had some very unique sort of like background and ideas and like spiritual and religious ideas um, that she brought to the table in terms of her relationships, which I guess is part of caused potentially some issues in the first marriage but then when she met alan like was much more she, much so more yeah. she, <laughs> she refused to have sex with her first husband she told him that she'd only marry him mm-hmm. if they they were never intimate right they never had a sexual relationship and he agreed to this he agreed at the time he agreed to at least she said he agreed to i can't find anything that spark wrote about it so mm. this is Bessie's version, he apparently agreed. Uh-huh. Um, and after they were married, basically changed his mind. Okay. But this is Bessie's version. So that's why when she did finally marry Alan, mm-hmm. she only did, um, agreed to be a celibate relationship. But prior to 
to this. Um, point said this wasn't a new idea. She'd said since her teens that she could never imagine her herself having a relation of that nature with a man. Yeah, it's like I think she says at some point that she had like a Venus Saturn square or something like that natally, and for some reason the idea of celibacy was like really important to her, and it was also part of her like philosophical or religious background. She called it celibacy later, but earlier on she just said she couldn't imagine that sort of relationship with a man. Okay. So is that so? There may be more. It may not be quite as clear as it seems because she specifically said that. You know, so and she certainly had um, close lesbian friends later in life. Okay, interesting. So there may be. It may not be quite as clear as it seems. Yeah, because she outlived Alan Leo by like almost fifteen years or something like that, and he died. I want to say relatively young. I'm not sure if it's young for the time period, but he was like 57 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he was still reasonably young. I mean, it wasn't as uncommon to die in your 50s then as it is now, but it wasn't. You, you could quite happily expect to live another 20 years. Okay, sure. Um, but Alan, while her first husband maybe was not okay with that, uh, Alan actually, it seemed like because of his background in theosophy and his like spiritual and religious beliefs, he was both so into Bessie, but also the Theosophists had some ideas about things like like celibacy and vegetarianism and other things being good for the spiritual yeah. life. That that actually suited him in that's, some way. That is that's pretty much the official version. Mm-hmm. But he also had a wife before Bessie, according to the records. Right. Well, that's a little <laughs> side note. That yeah. You you discovered and um, is a, something about his biography that was a little weird, like inconsistency? Yeah, there was basically, um, the reason this came to light was because of the way census um, records were taken at the time. Mm-hmm. The, there's an anomaly that they used to send out um, the letters say you've got to do a census a few days beforehand. They weren't just collected on that day, it's, mm-hmm. it's what to hurt. And because the way it was done and the forms going out on different dates in different areas, if you travelled for work, then you could quite easily end up in more than one location, the census enumerator. Also, the official advice, I'm getting to the point with this, the official advice was that if you um, had someone in your household that would normally live there, mm-hmm. but they were away because they were travelling for work, you should write them down anyway. Point being that Alan Lear came up twice on census returns the same day, and he was living in the address where we knew he was living, but he was also living in the address with his wife, Sarah. Okay, so Alan had another wife named Sarah, who he was at least officially still married to by the time that he met. They weren't legally married, they were declared as married, but this was in South London, they were living in Peckham. There were a lot of couples living together at that point who were married. Okay, so not officially on the books, but in reality. Yeah, and they might, to be fair, um, there were also people that got married in a chapel or something like that, so they would have some sort of service. It didn't mm. mean they just said it. There, there may have been something, but it wasn't done legally. Okay, um, so he had this other relationship, mm. but then he falls in love with Bessie, and that seems to become his primary relationship, and then we sort of lose or don't know what happened to his first wife. He was still connected with her after he married Bessie for a while. Okay, for like a few years? Yeah. Okay. Certainly. 
and then at some point we don't really she, know what happened with that. It's not clear, it's hard to trace. Um, I'm hoping she was the woman that she seems to have been who got into a fight in a pub a couple of years later, but I wasn't, couldn't quite be certain it was her, it looked tempting. Okay. But she seems to have stayed in the area. I did track her down some years later uh, at a different address, but within about half a mile, a mile, so mm. in the same area. The, the age matches mm-hmm. and everything, so she seems to have just stayed in the area. Whether he carried on seeing her after that, or after the last record of God, no idea. Because she's never mentioned in any, any official writings. It's not big. And even in the early, uh, one place I did search for is early issues of the Astrologers magazine. Alan writes about some of the early charts he's done, people he knew. So he, he describes friends and contacts and people he's met at work and, you know, talking about, for example, at one point his employer's horoscope. Mm-hmm. So obviously I combed through those really thoroughly because if she was going to turn up anywhere in his writings, right. it would have been in those, but there's nothing. nothing. Okay. Um, so whatever that relationship was or whatever happened to it, he increasingly, him and Bessie become a couple and become yeah. like a team. And then they agreed to get married, and he agreed on the term on her terms, in terms of them continuing to maintain celibacy, and that seemed to suit him for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, it obviously worked, and they were married like all their life, all Alan's life after that. So. Yeah, for 21, yeah. 21 years. Yeah, after so that. it obviously worked in some way. I mean, you never know the complete details of people's arrangements like that. So even now, you wouldn't write exactly why you'd agree to into that relationship under that circumstance or whatever you just don't sure so we're not going to know about it but something about it works yeah um and they became a good uh couple and a team and then his work really starts taking off around except people didn't like Bessie. oh really okay how how, why not um the i know when they were in india somebody wrote um I can't remember, it's led me to write a letter saying that she wasn't the sort of person they should have around there. And there's quite a few snide comments that Pop have been writing. That, okay. And she's um, Charles Carter later saying she was the sort of person that would always get messages from the astral plane just before dinner at eight o'clock. Okay. And there's, there's quite a few snarky comments about her that you can pick up here and there. She was not popular. Yeah, you have a quote from Charles Carter at one point in the book saying that he said in passing or something once that Alan Leo started the lodge in order to give Bessie something to do. Yeah, that actually seems a little bit unfair. Yeah. Um, because um, she was already running a couple of lodges at that time anyway, so just being practical about it, she didn't need anything to do. She'd right. got theosophical lodges that she was running anyway. Sure. She was involved in the vegetarian groups that um, Alan was involved in. Um, they were the Women's Vegetarian Union, which oddly allowed, allowed male members. Mm-hmm. And they did at-homes and events for vegetarian organisations. There was stuff. Bessie had plenty of things going on, which wasn't just Alan's stuff. She right. had her own things happening. Yeah, she seemed like a very independent and like enterprising yeah. person that had a lot of closely aligning like philosophical and religious beliefs with Alan's that dovetailed in very nice ways. Yeah, so she didn't need another lodge for something. She might have wanted one, might have appreciated, liked it, or whatever else. Mm-hmm. All that might possibly have been true, but there was no need for Alan to establish a lodge for something 
you know, the best test need to do. And also, I don't think Theosophical Society have ever established lodges because someone's bored and fancies one. Yeah. You know, that's just, it doesn't sure. make sense. Yeah. Um, so they um, eventually, like, because we're up to, like, the, let's say, early 20th century at this point, mm. the Astrological Magazine, how long did it continue for? Or the Astrologer's Magazine, and which became Modern Astrology? Ah. <sighs> It's not clear. I mean, Philip Graves can't quite work out exactly when it ended. Okay. But he went on well into the 1930s. 1930s. Okay, so it went well past... Way, I mean, way after um, Bessie's death. Yeah, okay. And at some point, Alan starts publishing books and then becomes like a prolific author, right? Sort of. What he actually does is repackage his correspondence course as a book first. Okay. He's got this material already written, but people used to subscribe in the same way as a lot of um, Safarial's early material was available on subscription rather than books. Mm. Um, and you'd sign up for a course of lessons, you pay your fee, you'd send the lesson, when you finish, you sent it back. Mm-hmm. And so he had a certain amount of duplicates, but after enough people had done the course and he wasn't selling that course any longer, he edited it slightly and became... Um, this, the basis of his first books. Okay. But he also used the green manuals, the, the small books, which tend to be the ones most associated with him, as a money-raising venture. People had to pay him to be published. Okay. So he, he advertised that if you paid, I can't remember the exact amount now, but if you paid X amounts um, and you were re- willing to fund it, he'd put your astrology book in this series. In other words, he acted as a vanity publisher and made money from that. Okay. And you have some of the books here, right? Yeah, we've got some of the The These are I mean, usually known as the green manuals because the majority of them are actually green, but just to prove that they're not always. <laughs> I've got red and blue ones. Um, they came with dust covers and they were sort of um, said as a series. The numbering of them, I mean, it's finally about 13, the numbering of them changes depending on what date you're looking at. So it's quite difficult to work out how many volumes are some of the titles change over the years as well right this one's titled alan leo's astrological manuals number three Mm. planetary influences a simple and explanatory manual um and then this is alan leo's astrological manuals number seven horary astrology that's quite interesting point of fact that later on he claims to be completely anti-horary astrology and not having anything to do with it but Right, and is early that because, on, he slowly looks at it. And I was was curious about that. Is that because of his shift towards character analysis? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, and then I'm trying to think. So one of the things that's funny is these are kind of small because all I've seen is like much later reprints from the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s where they've blown it up into like a big book. But the originals were actually pretty. That could fit in your yeah. hand, basically. They're, they're meant as pocket guides. They were sold as pocket guides. Okay. Marketed in that way. And this was a, a fairly standard print size mm-hmm. for, for manuals and things. So, I mean, he, he was choosing what printers could do easily and cheaply. So, that's part of the reason for that particular size. You can still um, order books from printers. It's four by six inches. Okay. It's a standard paper cut. So, you can, um, probably not in America because your paper sizes have always been different. Okay. But in Europe, this is a standard paper size, so it's Got a it. cheap way of producing the books. Okay. Um, and he, one of the reasons that he becomes, he publishes a bunch of books, and I think you've said in your book that he, in, including the books he published and ones that he had some hand in publishing, mm. he ended up publishing more than like 30 astrology books. 
Yeah, it's a bit difficult to work out exactly how many because sometimes you reformatted the materials so you get the same material turns up in different books in different editions. You get one that comes in two volumes and then you pull them together for one volume and they overlap. So it's quite hard to actually count exactly how many books mm. because the books themselves changed over the years. Sure. Also, he sometimes took credit for other people's writing. Mm which, I mean, that happens with these sort of packages anyway. Right. Um, other people sort of wrote under his name. It goes both ways. Okay. Um, and he was helped in terms of publishing by his connections with the Theosophical Society because they ended up having, like, publishing houses that distributed books, right? To an extent, but he most of his stuff he published himself. He okay. did it he did it through printers and mainstream publishers, not through the TS. Some of his okay. work came through the TS, yeah, but that wasn't his main thing at all, which is a bit unexpected, actually. Did the Theosophical Society have any role in terms of helping the distribution of his books be wider than it would be otherwise? They advertised. Okay. Got, I mean, he advertised in Theosophical journals in, in the UK, in America, and over Europe. Mm -hmm. um, he had a bit of a following in um, French and German magazines. His books were translated into French and German quite early on. Okay. So they became, you know, available there. It was more that he used the Theosophical Network to promote himself rather than the Theosophical Society directly promoted him. Okay. Um, for example, going to the conferences... In Europe, in the early years of the 20th century, it's like huge events. Mm. And he met a lot of European astrologers, non-English European astrologers, okay. through going to those conferences. And that's how he arranged to have his books translated and marketed and sold under publishing houses in varying different countries. Sure. So as a result of that, as a result of him having the book translated into different languages, he's often credited with being one of the primary or central figures in helping to spark the revival of astrology and its popularization in the early 20th century in the West, right? Yes. It's, the story of astrology in Europe is slightly different than which country you're going, you, you're going to. Sure. Um, I mean, the French weren't really doing an awful lot at that time, but there, there was some interest, so mm. it was published in French. The Germans went a totally different direction as well, you obviously know, and probably a lot of people listening to this know. Mm. But there was enough interest in his work. And the, before the big split in the Theosophical Society, before Steiner went off and did his own thing, mm. then it was quite a big, important organisation. Um, and so there was interest amongst theosophists in Germany okay. for you know, astrological texts and other esoteric texts. Sure. Um, so how much, I mean, how much can we attribute it to Leo, Alan Leo, the revival of astrology in the early 20th century as far as modern western especially let's say astrology in english-speaking countries goes like is that is he given an appropriate amount of credit or is he given too much credit it depends what you mean by revival. the astrology was being revived as an interest mm -hmm. in any event irrespectively he, he joined he joins in with what the revival that was also happening, he became part of it. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about the promotion of astrology and spread it to a more general audience, then yeah, it's integral in that. Okay, right. Because one of the things that you pointed out is that um, in addition to the horoscopes where they were doing written ones, he also kind of pioneered efforts to realizing that a lot of the delineations were similar oh, yeah. at one point. The little boxes on the wall. Right. It's basically, you just had a row of little boxes and it would go, Ascendant Aquarius, Ascendant Pisces, Ascendant Aries. So you 
Yeah, you so just grab your sheet, instead yeah. of like writing out the same delineation each time, they used uh, relatively recent technology to start doing sort of copies of the same delineations for certain planet and sign or whatever combinations, yeah. and then sending those. This out. is um, the technology. Technology in the office that got really good from their point of view because you've got duplicated machines and typewriters and things mm. like that, which obviously hadn't before. The idea of actually doing that was an American idea. There's American astrologers who are reporters having produce horoscopes in that way way before on Leo so mm. it what it few people had done it but it never been done in England and it hadn't been done on such a large scale okay so Alan yeah. Leo was the first and that I'm sure ex- that expanded um, the scope of like the delineations that they were able to do right well we st- and also I think the important thing about that is um the way that the delineations were written and mm. the divisions in them are precisely how horoscope, gen- sorry, computer-generated horoscopes are done now. We we are using the same categories and the same weightings and the same way of putting information together. Mm-hmm. And when you see a computer-generated horoscope, and it is obvious that you're going to have like page one will have you give you the ascendant, then we'll go to the sun sign, then we'll look at the moon sign, which tends to be the sort of order you go in. Right. But that's because Alan decided that was the order, because. It wasn't necessarily before. You wouldn't necessarily put the sun sign that far up the hierarchy. Okay. Yeah. So we're still getting Allen-type horoscopes. So part of his, one of his contributions was he really thought the sun sign was important. And that was something that he emphasized much more than other astrologers did up to that point to some extent. And that was partially due to his background in theosophy and his beliefs. Yeah, I mean, the, the role of the sun is something that Blavatsky spent a lot of time discussing, but also there was a book that came out in 1887, I believe, Solar Biology by Aaron Butler, mm-hmm. which is all about, despite the woolly language and the esoteric sound and stuff and some really complex sound stuff, was basically how to interpret your sun sign. That's what it boiled down to. Okay. And... We know that not only did Alan refer to it, he copied chunks out of it because bits of the text were found copied verbatim into his horoscope interpretations. Okay. He couldn't quite decide where he was going. He made the sun more prominent in all of his astrology than had been the case before, there's no doubt about that. But he published one of the little green manuals in which he gave interpretations of sun signs. Mm -hmm. And it went through several editions like most manuals did. But he couldn't quite decide how prominent to make that sort of interpretation. So although it was in the first edition, they took it out in the second edition, he put it back in in the third edition, and it kept changing. But first sight, he had complaints that he was using that sort of material. They Mm. took it out. Then people were complaining because they wanted to buy the book for that sort of material, so he put it in. So this was in about 1909, and that was when he was starting to do pretty much what we think of more as sun sign astrology. Okay. Um, we've got some of the magazines here where he puts sun sign astrology on the cover of modern astrology. So it's quite clear that he is thinking of that sort of popular astrology at that point. Right. And that's really interesting to me because that's like a while, that's decades before sometimes in like modern textbooks in the history of astrology, they talk about horoscope columns in newspapers and sun sign astrology being something that doesn't come about until like the 40s and 50s. Well, Raphael said in 1831 that it was an ancient and outmoded form of astrology. Okay. So, you know, it's it's been around a long time since sign astrology has. And there were astrologers that were using it to do basic predictions Mm -hmm. in Alan's sort of era. But it wasn't the main thing. 
and it was nowhere near as common as now. And if you um, you read descriptions of sun sign type interpretations, they wouldn't always be called by the signs because people wouldn't know them as readily as we did. So sure. it would say, instead of saying Sagittarius, it go if you have a December birthday, but it was sun sign content. Okay, it's just defi- you know just dis- described differently. And that was the subject of one of your previous books, yeah. uh, flirting with the zodiac, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's something you cover more extensively yeah. in terms of the history and origins of sun sign astrology in that book. Okay. Um, so Alan gets it really into that. Um, he also starts pushing things more towards character analysis, and that seems to be one of his things. How much was that consistent and already happening early in his book versus how much was that a later development towards the end of his life that was motivated by some of the legal issues that he ran into? Yeah, um, it was happening to an extent anyway because that sort of attitude to astrology was informed by his theosophical beliefs. Okay. So he was going in that direction anyway, but he was still doing predictions, making forecasts, doing definite predictions Mm -hmm. until he ran into legal trouble. But the, the legal thing... Although he didn't end up in legal trouble till 1914, quite late on in his career, he knew other people all along that had run into, gone into, got into trouble with the law right from the start. Okay. So he knew there was a risk of it happening at any point. So there were still, at this point in the late 19th and early 20th century, there were old laws on the books that were like anti-fortune telling laws. Until 1989. Okay, wow. That's just... So not that long ago, no. though. Uh, so, but that this was a real like threat potentially for him, and eventually he did get in trouble with the law and was was dragged into court uh, at one point in like nineteen fourteen, and then yeah. again in nineteen seventeen. Yeah, the nineteen fourteen case didn't go ahead in the end because the documents they based it on were proven to have been written while he was out of the country. He couldn't possibly have written those precise documents. So, so that the case, case was dismissed. Yes, so okay. he couldn't go forward. On like a technicality, basically? Yes. Okay. Um, the one in 1917 was different. Um, he didn't have a leg to stand on. I basically had been breaking the law as it was written. Mm-hmm. It was odd, though, because um, the, it was part of the Vagrancy Act, and there have been long arguments about using that part of the law against astrologers. and I mean, that's a discussion into itself, we won't really go into it now. But it usually happened that if you weren't a nuisance and you just kept working, kept working quite happily and mm. you didn't cause any fuss or bother, the police usually couldn't be bothered by you. Okay. Occasionally, there were outcries about we have to get rid of all the nasty astrologers. So there'd be a few police raids. They'd set someone up and get rid of them. But they weren't usually bothered about astrologers because astrologers tend to be more middle class and have more money. They were much more likely to target phrenologists or card readers or any other sort of fortune-telling people under the same amount. Bess's husband also was um, was taken to court over his fortune-telling abilities okay. a couple of times. It's, you know, anybody who worked in that area, they were at risk of this at any point. And how serious was it? I mean, he got off on a technicality on the first case, but the second case, he was actually fined and there was the threat potentially of like jail time, right? Yeah, he got off quite light. The other astrologers got hard labor. Wow. And But on the other hand, there were some astrologers who regarded it as just something that happened and they budgeted for it. There were quite a few of them that ended up in court three, four, five times. Okay. Yeah. It I mean, was just, just happened. You just had to allow for it. 
this was a, a topic that came up on an episode I did uh, not too long ago with Christopher Renstrom, where mm. we talked about Evangeline Adams and her parallel court cases in New York yeah. that were happening in the same time period. And the question of to what extent was this like an existential threat to her business as an astrologer versus how much was this just a nuisance that you normally would pay a fine and get out of it? For most people, it was a nuisance. They... The law had been there for a long time. It was never really intended to go against astrologers and the you know that sort of people, mm-hmm. but obviously they fell under the act. But um, although the act in that in that form had been, um, I think it's about seventeen fourteen. That sort the law was older, but that form mm-hmm. been since about the early eighteenth century. It wasn't used that often. There was always a risk, and every so often, police or magistrates would seek to make an example of someone mm-hmm. and take them to court. But if you look at the numbers of people practicing astrology or phonology or whichever thing you want, or palmistry, actually they, d- they didn't like palmists at all. Palmists okay. ended up in court with monotonous regularity. Mm. Um, but there were a lot of people practicing these things. There, wasn't, there weren't that many that ended up in court okay. in proportion to them. And since the Occult Defence League set up and Joseph Dodson toured the country to defend them. There were even fewer that got convicted. Okay. And I mean, when Alan lost a case in 1917, though, yeah. he had to pay what you said was the equivalent of like a thousand pounds in yeah. today's uh, like money values. So that's like a sizable But because he had good character references, he had people come to court to say what a nice chap he was and how middle class he was, and Mm. he he paid his rates, which is a really important thing. You pay your rates, you're obviously a settled person, you own Mm. property, all this sort of stuff. He was a respectable person, so the risk of him getting hard labour, which was a serious risk for other astrologers, wasn't really there. Okay. Um, so that's good to know, but it still affected him and it was something that, that made him want to alter his writings after that point in order to remove um, any statements that were like definite predictions. Yeah, she started altering the writings quite early on. Um, H.S. Green started rewriting some of it because he couldn't, Alan alone wasn't going to do it fast enough, it was okay. the idea, so it got him involved in rewriting it. Mm-hmm. And that was why after the court case he went down to Cornwall with Bessie. The idea it's a bit of a holiday, but also it was quiet. He could sit there and just rewrite all his texts, get out, get rid of anything that looked like a prediction or a prediction technique or a definite forecast. Okay, I mean to me that seems like he was he took this seriously enough to go back and edit his writings that he didn't want to get in trouble again for something that he had written and published. Yeah, I mean, it was also marked because it was like his death, the, his death attendancy, or is there a tendency towards death quote, which is what the whole quote, what the whole case hinged on, because throughout it, you know, he it discussed tendencies, not specific events. Events, he wasn't a fortune teller, mm-hmm. and they kept saying tendency, which is when the prosecution raised a thing about you predict that you know his death attendancy or the tendency towards death. That was no one was listening after that. Right. And he, so, really, he thought he'd got around it at that point. He thought he'd already got to the tendencies and maybes, but he'd obviously not got far enough. Okay, so most of his text, it, it was okay because it just talked about tendencies yeah. or possibilities with the astrological placements, but then there was this one sentence that was like a little bit too far when it yeah. talked about the person potentially experiencing a death in their life at some point in the in a specific time frame yeah, in the future. Too, yeah, that's far too specific. So yeah. hinged on that one sentence. So yeah, they had to go through all his published work. That was the idea. And as I said, he was doing it with H.S. Green, who was 
who'd actually written some of it anyway, and he wrote a couple of manuals, he wrote a lot of articles in modern astrology, things like that. He worked quite closely with Alan. So he knew the material really well, is the point. Sure. So, you know, they could work together on rewriting chunks of it. Right. So they're working on that, and Alan goes off to that vacation, but then he's furiously working on rewriting his stuff, but then he kind of overworks himself and then um, has like a medical incident and dies. Yeah, he has um, like a um, stroke of brain, you know, blood on the brain type thing. Something that you you would not be able to predict. Okay. And people maintain, people around him insisted it was the stress that had brought it on, so therefore it was the court's fault, it's how he'd been treated, he mm. died because of the pressure caused this, da 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 da. Yeah. Maybe, or maybe it was something waiting to happen, unfortunate timing. Sure. You know, there's no way of knowing that. But the, his contemporaries, the other astrologers in his circle, thought that the stress of the court case had brought it on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so at that point, so Alan passes away. A few years before that, they had founded the lodge and started ho- holding meetings here in 1915. So much of the important stuff, I'm always shocked at how late it happened in Alan's life, it seems like. I mean, certainly in the second half, but even so many of his books were written in like that that decade or two. Well, they were, but I mean, in terms of establishing the lodge in 1915, mm-hmm. I remember it was like the fourth or fifth lodge they'd established. It's just the one that happened to survive. Sure. And there'd been another astrological, the Hampstead Lodge, which is a theosophical lodge, mm-hmm. was almost completely astrology in content as well. So, okay. yes, it was late, but they'd already been doing this. So they'd established lodges going way back. Sure. Yeah. The same with the books. A lot of the books were published late, but the content of those books was written quite early on. From the courses? Yeah, a lot a lot of the um, the Astrology for All book, the big fat one that used to come into, and How to Interpret Unitivities or whatever it's called, that also used to come into two, in two volumes. Okay. They were really based on the correspondence courses and these lectures that it did originally. Got it. So although the books came out quite late, the mm. material for the books was goes much quite older. a way back. Yeah. That, make, that makes a lot more sense. Um, okay, so we touched on most of this legal troubles, um, his shift towards a more spiritual astrology with karma and reincarnation. I mean, that's not something that we read in like William Lilly or Firmicus Maternus necessarily. Those were new things. But you do were... in Simon Foreman. He mentions okay. in Hindu things. So there were going way back astrologers in England that were looking occasionally at more Indian type ideas. Okay. And let's remember that um, Alan and Bessie went to India twice. Okay. I think that's actually quite important in you know, forming his later views of astrology. Okay, in terms of some of the influence on maybe Hinduism uh, or Hindu Indian thought on some of his astrology. Well, he knew he knew more about it than you think. He was writing. They had some um, articles on Hindu techniques and astrology textbooks in the astrologers' magazines from the 1890s. He knew okay. Hindu astrologers from at least that far back okay. and was far more familiar with that sort of material than people usually think he is. And he organised at one point a conference um, in India to prove um, Western astrology was better than Indian astrology, mm-hmm. which of course didn't prove anything one way or from either side. The, sure. the Indians thought they'd proved their point and he thought he'd proved it. So, I mean, they were all quite happy at the end. Wait, but he was trying to prove what? That Western astrology was superior as a protective technique. Okay. But interestingly, when he did that, he he didn't accept that Indian astrology was better, but he, he sent 
um, details the predictions the Indian astrologers had made to Charles Carter mm -hmm. to ask for his views on them because he basically thought these were really good predictions. He was a bit worried, so huh. he obviously took it a lot more seriously than he let on. Right. Uh, that's actually really interesting. And, and he would have been able to have some of those connections in India because of the Theosophical Society yeah. and their headquarters at one point being moved there? Yeah, um, yeah they had what's still there. Nadja, just outside Chennai. Okay. Uh, so they had two major, him and Bessie had two major periods or trips there to India? Yeah. Okay. Um, so we've talked about the shift towards character analysis. I mean, that was definitely something that he emphasized a lot in his astrology that became characteristic or, or created sort of a foundation for what we now know of as modern astrology in the late 20th and early 21st mm -hmm. century. Um, okay. Uh, died relatively young. He had funny disputes with other astrologers like Safariel, which we've talked about. Um, I guess uh, we've talked about whether his reputation was deserved, and you think yes and no, just depending on how... It depends. Um... If we're going to summing up, sum, sorry, sum him up, mm -hmm. you know, in a couple of sentences, he's probably the best salesman that sure. astrologers had. Yeah. He was trained as a commercial salesman. He applied those skills to selling astrology. He never made as much money as people think he did, but mm -hmm. he made a decent income. Um, there's records in the press in quite detail. accounts of his life and his business. In 1909, when he... He and Bessie went to court to challenge the will of her father. Mm. Or, uh, well, sorry, her, Bessie's cousins and other relatives challenged the will because she was left most of the money. So okay. um, Alan and Bessie had to go and defend you know, getting the money. Anyway, because of this, there was a lot of discussion about how Alan and Bessie worked, who they were, what they did, how much money he made. It became clear he was, um, when he left his salesman job and became a astrologer, he left an income of equivalent of about £50,000 a year. Okay. And he thought he was going to increase on that. Mm. So he he was one of the high earners. Got it. He did quite well out of it. We don't know exactly how much, but these little, if you put, if you join the dots with these little bits about this money for this, and, you know, it becomes apparent he made good money out of it. Sure. I mean, could one, one of the things I guess we could say about him is, if nothing else, he made astrology more accessible for people in general? Yes. Yeah. Was that one of yeah. his main accomplishments, let's say, in terms of him promoting and popularizing astrology yeah, he and making was, it more accessible? He's done great on the internet. He was quite an approachable person and right. like people liked watching him lecture. Yeah. Not just the content, it's quite apparent people, they enjoyed him just standing up and saying things. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the content of the lectures, something said like, you know, you just went on for an hour about that. There's, right. He's yeah, very there's like, not a lot there. He's very like so, kind of flowery and like yeah. his speech or writing, it seems so like. So with the, the reactions, of, if you, like, you read the lecture content now and then read the account of it, he obviously had to have good presentation skills mm -hmm. because if someone else read that content, I did have one somewhere, but it just wasn't a bit exciting. Sure, but it was at least compelling, especially maybe on a beginner, intermediate level. And while some of his contemporaries that were like more advanced astrologers may have been a bit annoyed about him, he still probably appealed to the public and helped to popularize astrology in a significant way in the early 20th century. When yeah, I mean, it's quite important. It seems obvious to I me, and I'm just realizing from what you're saying, no, it's not sure. so obvious to you, um, that he lectured to women. Okay. Because astrology, there were some women astrologers earlier, because it always has been, basically to pretend otherwise, but 
you know, they're a tiny, tiny minority. Sure. And when Alan started out, um, all the people he's corresponding with, all these drugs corresponding with, were men. When he was lecturing later on, particularly after he was active in the Theosophic Society, the bulk of his audience would be female. Interesting. So okay. this is quite an important point. This is one reason why he could go bigger, because he's included women in his audience. Like any Theosophical group, mm. um, you get to, to an extent nowadays where there'll be a tendency of the people who hold important positions to be male, mm. but the audience for the events, conference, lecture, whatever, mm. to be primarily female. Okay. Um, and so, and that, I mean, Bessie maybe plays some role in that to the extent that Alan dies in like 1917, but then mm. she lives all the way until 1931 and sort of continued some of that work in terms of astrology? She oversaw it and she got um, Duncan McNaughton and Vivian Robeson and people like that to help out to keep modern astrology going. Right. Um, so Vivian Robeson was like a librarian, but he was also an astrologer. Yeah, and he was a younger generation. He was the next generation of upcoming astrologers. Okay. And he edited modern astrology and worked on it under Bessie's sort of instructions. She was nominally in charge. She wrote editorials for modern astrology, but she didn't. She faded after Alan Cox. She wasn't that active in anything. Okay. Um, and by the time modern astrology got to, like, when late in Betty's life, at the end towards the end of her life, uh, a lot of its content was reprints of Alan's early articles. Mm. There was hardly any original content going. It kept going because the new generation hadn't seen the original versions of the article. Okay. So the magazine could sell because you could get away with reprinting this stuff, but the, you know, there was nothing new happening. And the British Journal of Astrology was getting um, the non-theosophical audience and selling more. But I think it's quite important to remember as well, we weren't actually selling many copies. Okay. You know, on balance. It, you think of these magazines and it's like modern astrology, it's one of the most important astrological magazines, don't you? But not to a lot of people. It's not it's self-respectably from an astrological magazine, but even now, an astrological magazine doesn't generally sell that much. Not a serious one. Sure, not compared to like an actual, like a larger magazine yeah. or something like that. Um, but so uh, Vivian Robeson helps finish uh, and publish Alan Leo's Dictionary of Astrology. Yeah. And then Bessie ends up writing a biography of Alan. Well, that, that was actually done shortly after his death. Um, there was a couple of issues of modern astrology, which, you know, celebrating his life. Mm. And she extracted some of that material and wrote around it and added other bits. Right? And that became the, the book. Okay. It's made of those um, celebratory pieces in the magazine. Got it. Okay. And it's the biography that everybody knows about. It's the one that is always recommended because it was the only biographical account for a long time. Right. Um, yeah, and it's interesting having a biographical account of an astrologer, mm. whereas you don't you don't always have that if you go like further back in history um, with some major figures. Uh, no, we have to remember, this was the era, which is 
good and bad when you research it, the theosophists, mm -hmm. who wrote down everything. They were obsessed with writing things down, these people. Okay. And, in, and whereas a few years before, you'd find it hard to research the material and find out what people were doing. Right. With this group of people, you just like, I really don't want to know more about what you had for lunch. You right. know, they, they were the people who would have been on Facebook and I, they would have put pictures up of their lunch. They wrote everything down. They wrote letters to each other every five seconds. They recorded the Theosophists are obsessive about writing things down. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess maybe it goes back to your point about the just the explosion in the ability to communicate yeah. with like the post being delivered like seven times a day. And probably that was unusual. That was the height of it, by the way. I mean, that was in London for a period. If you went to Birmingham, you'd only get five times a day. Oh, but only five. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But even so, obviously, yeah. Yeah, communication was good. Right. And we've got the telegraph by then as well, so that you could telegram people quite quickly. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of brings us to the end of this in terms of his life and his work and career. And by the end of his life, certainly astrology is in, like, in a full-blown um, revival. And certainly by the end of Bessie's life in the early 1930s, it's really taken off, right? It's just, it, there's a point between when Alan goes and when and we get into 1930s where it sort of rests, it, it's just ticking along quite nicely for a while. Okay. And at that point, you've got one of the main characters, Cairo, um, William Warner, who, who pretends to be Count Hammond, who deserves a good biography, so there's only been some awful ones about him. Mm. Um, and he was like the main person then, the society person. And then you get that moment when he turned down that job for the Sunday Express, and Richard Thropp, who called himself Richard Naylor, took it, and, and Sun Sign Astrology explodes. But right. Alan has set that up. He knew Cairo, he communicated with him, they discussed Sun Sign Astrology. Mm. Okay. So he, he set the ground for that to happen. Right. And then it later takes off, and that's in like the 1940s or something? 30s. 30s, okay. Um, and one interesting also thing is I didn't realize that Charles Carter was that young, that he was yeah. like a younger contemporary. Oh, he was a right pain when he was young, when you read his writing. Yeah. He could have done the slap when he was young, I think. Well, really. and, but he became really like the leading figure in, in British astrology in subsequent decades. But mm. I'm surprised, like by the 1950s, he was still writing books, right? But I was surprised that he was around that early on while Alan was still alive. He was only, he must have been in his mid-teens, wasn't it, when he started astrology? He started very young, certainly. Okay. And I think it was, it, yeah, it was just like I said, he'd come across Alan Leo's work through one of the Schilling manuals, one of those little green manuals. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a few people that you look at how they started astrology and they went, oh, I picked up one of the Schilling manuals. Right. Yeah, that was my first introduction. Yeah, I mean, Alan must have influenced just countless astrologers as a result of that um, through... He paid attention things. to stuff that people didn't before, like making the books affordable. Right. It's such an obvious, basic thing. Yeah. But there weren't affordable textbooks. And, and not just affordable, but also um, he said that when he learned astrology that he found it really difficult to learn, and so mm. he tried to simplify it a little bit. Is that correct, or is that a good... It's probably to an extent, but he plays down his education ability quite a bit later on because okay. it, this, um, when they were working, they being Lacey and Leah, working with Catherine Thompson on the Sphinx, which was published in the States. Mm. Yeah. Catherine Thompson, who was involved with Evangeline Adams, that Catherine Thompson. One of her teachers or something? Sort Debatable. Of, yeah. 
Um, but she published a magazine called The Sphinx, which looks identical to modern astrology. It's the same design and everything. And it's the same writer as well. It's just mm. something American. Um, anyway, point being that there's articles in there. Alan Leah writes about hieroglyphs in esoteric texts and things like that. Um, as in icons and images, not Egyptian hieroglyphs. Okay. Um, but he makes it quite clear that he's read 16th and 17th century astrology texts. Okay. There's no way, I mean, he discusses stuff like Nostradamus you know, in a sort of quite intelligent way. So he must have read these texts. Okay. A little later, he starts talking about how he hasn't had much of an education. He claims never to have read a book and everything. But, he, but early on, you, you're quoting these books. Sure. You've obviously read some of them. Right. The books probably weren't his. They were probably Lacey's. Lacey had a good library. Mm. But he did have some material. But he did, he did later on, he tried to... He marked himself as like being the everyman astrologer, the man of the people type idea. I'm not well educated, I'm just like you. And he sold it like that, it worked very well. And do you think it's true that he simplified astrology to some extent to make it accessible, like with emphasizing things like, I don't know, like the like Aries equals the first house equals Mars or other things like that that were like useful? I think, yeah, to an extent, but also I think he wrote down, sometimes he wrote down what people were actually doing rather than what the text should, said they should do. Okay. Because like, for example, the whole thing about sun sign astrology switching, you know, becoming a big thing. Um, since the eighties, um, when Blavatsky had been writing about the role of the sun in the cult, in in um, theosophical cosmology, mm-hmm. everyone knew, you know, the sun suddenly becoming important. So the sun sign, if you're doing astrology, is obviously going to be more important. Mm-hmm. So people would be doing charts with that informing their interpretation, but the astrology textbooks wouldn't necessarily say that. Okay. So I think some of what Alan was writing. Um, some of it may well have been simplifying it for a mass audience, that's fair. But also I think some of it might have been writing down what people were doing in practice rather than what they were supposed to be doing in theory. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah, well, and that's kind of his life. And uh, Bessie, like we said, lives for a little bit longer. Another. She has a bit of a miserable life at the end, unfortunately. She has a lot of health problems. Mm. Um, reading between the lines, it looks like she suffered from cancer at least once. Okay. Possibly twice later on. She lost the ability walk to walk. Okay. She had to wheel around in the chair and she was not a happy person after I went gone. Okay. Um, but at least while they were alive, it seems like they ended up, for whatever reason, becoming a good match that mm. sort of mutually enforced, reinforced each other in some way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, cool. Well, thanks a lot for, for doing this with me today. I'd really recommend people check out your book, which is titled Modern Astrologers, The Lives of Alan and Bessie Leo. Uh, so people can find it on Amazon or wherever else. Uh, and you've written, like, what are, can we list off, like, if people like this this book, they're also going to like your book uh, on Safarial. What is the title of that? Uh, the Astral Trump. Okay. And Flirting with the Zodiac is the other one that's in this sort of yeah. area, which is the history of sun sign astrology. Yeah, that's another one I really would like to talk to you more about at some point. Um, so people should definitely check out those three books. Um, what's your next project going to be? Do you have one lined up in terms of astrology? No, I'm working on something that's very non-astrological. <laughs> okay, well that might be a nice break from yeah. hardcore. Take a different hit. direction for a little while because I've been... In the 19th century, hanging around astrologers for a bit too long. I think I need a holiday. Need a break. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was a well-deserved break. Um, thanks a lot for 
uh, writing this book and like documenting all of this history um, and ferreting out some of those details that we wouldn't know otherwise in terms of little things that maybe aren't in the official biographies. Um, yeah, and thanks a lot for joining me today. Thank you. All right. Uh, thanks everybody for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, uh, and we will see you next time. Thank you.